RUF is a campus ministry here at Wake where every student is invited to encounter Jesus, to explore faith, to enjoy community, and to be empowered to change. Um, so in RUF, we invite you to encounter Jesus. So why is this? Well, we think that Jesus is supremely beautiful, that he is intellectually compelling, and that he's worthy of our worship. And so my hope is that RUF is a place where you, whatever faith background you're coming from, wherever you're coming from this week, that um, you can come and encounter Jesus for yourself and figure out what it is that you believe about him and why you believe it. Um, so I want to start, as we've been doing, start with an icebreaker question. Turn to your neighbor and um, answer this. What is the best sports movie? Your favorite sports movie. I know there are so many great sports movies. Um, so I, I love lots of them, but one that I particularly love is Miracle. Have you all seen Miracle? Yes. So many people love it. Yes. Hockey. America. So many good things together. Okay. So if you haven't seen Miracle, it's a movie about the 1980 um, Olympic U.S. hockey team and them going toe-to-toe with the Soviets um, or skate-to-skate, blade-to-blade with the Soviets. All right. Um, so here's why I want to talk about this. So um, the movie, uh, it's, it focuses on the coach of the 1980 U.S. Olympic team, this guy Herb Brown, Herb Brooks, excuse me, Herb Brooks, and he had a problem. Well, the problem was that he had the best hockey players in the country, and he couldn't get them to play together as a team. Um, and he knew that the Soviet team was so good, they were, they were so fierce, um, they are so Russian, I guess they weren't Russian yet, they're still Soviet. They're so Soviet, they're so fierce, that unless the team could skate as one, unless they could play as one, that the U.S. was lost. Like, there's no way they're going to win. And so, for a good chunk of this movie, there's, uh, the, the central conflict is the coach trying to get the players to play as one. Um, they're out from all different places, they play in all different college teams, they all have their own rivalries within the team. And so this question that, that hangs in the air for, for probably about half the movie is how can these players play as one? How do, how do the many become one? How do we achieve unity? And this isn't just a sports problem. Um, I was listening to a show on the radio a couple weeks ago called 1A, which is on NPR in the mornings. And the host, Joshua Jackson, um, would bring up a different topic each week. And this one was, he said, hey, Colin, if you experience estrangement in your family, um, if you're estranged from a family, family member, Colin, we'd love to hear from you. And so he fielded call after call of people calling in and talking about how they're estranged from their mom or their dad, or they're estranged from their children, or they're estranged from their sibling. And again, this, this question came up and this, this longing for reconciliation. Um, people had a longing to be reunited, but they didn't know the way forward. And the question is, how do we achieve unity? How, how do people come together as one? Maybe this is something you experience in your own family. Um, and it's not just in our fam- families, it's in our communities, right? We are experiencing right now nationally this deep division, right? There's, there's deep estrangement. Our country's divided ideologically, generationally, socioeconomically, racially, there's these deep divisions that exist. And there's these voices. There are voices crying out, longing for reunion, longing for reconciliation. There are other voices. There are other voices of hatred and of separation. Um, But it reveals that we don't know the way forward. How do the many live together as one? How do we achieve unity? Right? It's not just present in our nation. It's also in our churches. Um, if you have any experience in the church, maybe you grew up in church or you just have observed the church, you've seen that there are deep divides in churches. 
There's lots of different types of people with their own agendas and their own cultures who on their own either are enemies or maybe they should be enemies. And again, in the church, we have this question, how do we achieve unity? How do the many become one? And so this is our question for tonight. How does this happen? How do the many become one? How, how does a group of people from wildly different backgrounds achieve unity? How can the many live together as one? How can we live in peace with one another? Not just ceasefire, but actual peace. And this is the project of Ephesians. Um, this semester, we're reading the book of Ephesians together. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he wrote this letter in the middle of, like, they think it's around 62 AD that he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. And this is the, the task of this letter, is um, answering this question, how do the many um, live as one? So tonight we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is printed on the back of your bulletin. Um, and we're going we're gonna to read this together now. Um, This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true and it is given to us in love. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so as I was preparing for this this week, uh, one of the commentaries I read said that this is perhaps the most difficult section of the letter. And so I enlisted a lot of help in what y'all are going to hear tonight. So a lot of what I'm going to say comes from um, two pastors, uh, Greg Thompson and John Stott. And so our outline for tonight is, is on the back of your bulletin. Um, we're going to look and see that the unity that we long for is found through remembering our alienation, re-experiencing our reconciliation, and re-engaging our purpose. So just to orient you again to the the church in Ephesus, there were two groups of people in this church. Um, There were Jews and there were Gentiles, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And no two groups have had more animosity, more racism, more religious-based discrimination, more racial hatred than Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles had um, an incredibly long, thousands of years history of animosity. And Gentiles were the Jewish word for anyone who was a non-Jew. So it comes from the Greek word just meaning the nations. So it's the Jews and everyone else. And there was this deep hatred and deep division. 
One commentator wrote this about about the Jews and Gentiles. He says, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews, this is first century, remember first century. Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to help a Gentile mother when she was giving birth, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews, and the barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, they would carry out the funeral of that boy or girl because such, a, such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Now, the, the Bible tells the story of the early church that after Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. And he didn't just send his Holy Spirit to Jews, but he sent them to Gentiles also. And so you have Jews and Gentiles with this history of animosity, living together in the same cities, worshiping Jesus together in the same churches. And in the first century, there weren't dozens of churches. There wasn't a church on every corner. There was one church. And the people who were there were the people in that place who worshiped Jesus. And These are those people whose ethnic groups hated one another. And so this is the project of the book of Ephesians. This is the project that the book takes up. How do people who are radically different and even enemies live together as one? Not just get along. Not just, hey, we're in the same room together. We can can stand each other for an hour and a half on Sundays. How do we actually live together in unity as one? And in our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul lays out the foundation for this project of Christian unity. And he begins by calling us to remember our alienation. He begins by calling us to remember our alienation. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. He says this, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is saying that if you want real unity... You must begin by remembering your sin. Remember the thing that divides you. And last week, if you were here, we read that Paul believes that all humans are sinners. That our sin is so bad that it leaves us spiritually dead. And not only that we are sinners, but that we continue to sin. And here Paul is specifically addressing the Gentiles. Right In verse 11, he's saying, I want you, Gentiles, to remember your separation because of your sin. And then he uses this list of negatives to describe the Gentiles, starting with the name they were called. Do you see this? Those who were called the uncircumcision. So the Jews referred to the Gentiles by what they didn't have, what they were not. And they were outside of the Jewish community. Circumcision was something given by God to the Jews to mark them off as God's people. And those without it were on the outside. Um, It was a mark of their religious belonging. So do you find this odd that Paul is referring to these people in the church by what they are not? I want you to imagine what it would have been like to receive this letter. So imagine, I don't know how to do this because none of us knows what it's like to live 2,000 years ago, but let's just try. All right, so imagine you live in Ephesus in the first century, and the year 62, um, two men, two Christians arrive from Rome. Their name are Tychicus and Onesimus. And they come, they say that they've come from the Apostle Paul, and they have a letter for the church. And so everyone who you know who's a Christian, you guys get together and you go to someone's house at night, and it's candlelit. And someone who's literate, who can read Greek, stands up and they read this letter. And as you're listening to this letter, Jew and Gentile together, you, let's say you're a Gentile, 
meaning that you're a non-Jew, you hear yourself addressed in these negatives, told that you're not. You're part of the uncircumcision. Now, how would that make you feel? It's like me standing up here and saying, I want to talk to all the non-males in the room, right? That's kind of awkward. I want to talk to all of you non-Greek students, probably even more awkward. I want to talk to you all you non-white students, right? This is deeply uncomfortable, why would Paul be doing this? Why would Paul be addressing people like this? Now remember, Paul is a pastor. So his aim is not just to fill their heads with theological knowledge, with religious ideas, but he wants to see real reconciliation happen between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. That's what he's doing, and that's why he starts with this. Now, rhetorically, what would you be feeling right now as a Gentile? Right, sitting in this room as this letter is read, as he says, hey, Gentiles, listen up. You were separated. You were alienated. You were strangers. You had no hope. You were without God. You were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. You were far off. Now, if you're a Gentile in the room, you would probably begin to feel some shame. And the Jews who, who had this hatred for you, who knew you were on the outside, would say, yeah, keep going, Paul. That's good. Keep going. And then these walls would begin to rise between you. It's as if Paul is building this little barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles here. Now, why in a letter about unity would Paul make half of his congregation feel like outsiders? Why would he do this? This is because Paul understands that when the Gentiles converted to Christianity, they held the Jews in contempt. When they converted to Christianity, when they began to worship Jesus, they held the Jews in contempt. And they did this because Gentiles were Roman citizens, right? They had status in their communities. The Jews in, in Greek cities, Jews were this strange religious minority in the Roman Empire who were allowed to worship their God, but they had odd rituals and odd dress and odd music and probably odd food, and they didn't really engage in civic life. But the Gentiles were proud. And they didn't think they needed to be like Jews, but rather they thought the Jews needed to become like them. And it never would have occurred to them that the Jews were there first. It never would have occurred to them that salvation was from the Jews. And because of this, they were blind to the cultural customs of the Jewish Christians. We see this in the book of Acts, which describes the early church. We see um, that they were completely blind to the way that the Jews, their, their customs as Jews and so the message, the, Jewish, the, the, the message that the Gentiles sent, that they put off to the Jews, was this. They'd say, if these Jewish Christians would just stop doing all this Jew stuff, then they'd be normal like us. Then we'd have unity. Stop being weird stop, and start acting like a normal Christian. Real Christians do this. They act this way, like Gentiles. And in response, Paul, their pastor, says, be like you? Why would they want to be like you? You were pagan sinners. You were cut off without God. They don't need to be like you. They don't want to be like you. And Paul goes on. He says that you Gentiles had double alienation. Not only were you alienated, were you separated from God, but you were separated from God's people. And he says that until you remember that you were estranged from God and his people because of your sin, you will never have true unity. And he tells them that the unity that we long for is found in remembering our alienation and then and re-experiencing our reconciliation. Re-experiencing our re- reconciliation. In verse 14, if you look with me, verse 14, Paul says this. He says that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. This is a great image, right? That there's this great wall that divides people. It's a great a metaphor for alienation. A big wall that separates God from man and separates Jew from Gentile. But it wasn't just a metaphor. That there, there was actually a wall 
that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. There was a dividing wall in the temple in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem in the first century, there was a temple um, to, to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. And this temple was built by King Herod. And um, if you want to afterward Google a picture of this, you can see just how grand this temple was. And in the temple, outside of the, the holy place where God dwelt, there were um, three courts. There was a court for the, the priests, and then there was a court for the, the Jewish men, the lay people, and then a court for the Jewish women. And then outside of that, if you walked five, I think like five steps down, there was a walled platform. And then the other side of that wall, if you walked another 14 steps down, um, there was another wall. And beyond that was the outer court, which was called the court of the Gentiles. And this was a big courtyard that ran around the entire temple and its inner courts. And from any part of it, the Gentiles could look up and they could see the temple. And they could see the Jewish men and the Jewish women and the priests, but they were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off by this surrounding wall, which was this four-foot-thick, four-foot-thick stone barricade. And on the walls, there were these notices in Greek and in Latin that read this. They said, trespassers will be executed, saying to the watching world, God belongs to the Jews. And Paul is saying that the reconciliation we need doesn't come from being Jewish. It comes to us in the place where all good things come. It comes in Jesus. In Jesus, God tears walls down. And Paul highlights Jesus' work of breaking things apart. This is what he's doing in verses 14 to 16. He says that Jesus, there's this language of breaking and abolishing and killing. So what is being broken here? Two things are being broken. First, Jesus. In his crucifixion, Jesus' body is broken. His flesh, his body on the cross is broken. And Paul believed, as all Christians do, that on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered and died for the sins of the world. And that through his death, he reconciles sinners like you and me to himself. And not just Jesus' body that was broken. It's not just his body, but walls were broken. When you look at the cross, when you look at Jesus' death, when you look at the cross, it's not just about sin killing Jesus. But it's about Jesus killing sin. It's not Jesus, just Jesus being broken. It's Jesus breaking sin. And so when you see his body torn apart, you see walls torn apart. In Jesus, you see God's work of breaking apart. And in Jesus, we see here that you see God's work of bringing together. This is verse 13 through 17. He says, you who are once far off have been brought near. Jesus himself is our peace, made us both one. He says that in Jesus, he creates in himself a new humanity. Hear this coming together, reconciled us to God in one body through the cross. Jesus came to preach peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles, and to those who are near, the Jews. The cross is not just where the wall of sin is broken, but where broken sinners are brought together. And it's only through the death of Jesus that sin can be broken. So Paul builds this wall because he saw Gentiles dismissing the Jews. But he also sees the Jews dismiss the Gentiles because of their culture. What they wore, what they ate, the songs they sang. And in verse 15, Paul says that Jesus has taken down the wall. And the wall he's talking about here is the wall of the Jewish ceremonial laws. These were the laws that showed who was in and who was out. And Paul is saying that Jesus, through Jesus' death, he has destroyed that. So what is Paul doing here? He's telling the Gentiles that they don't have to become like the Jews. When the wall comes down in Jesus, you will be reconciled. Saying to the Jews, you do not have to become like the Gentiles. To the Gentiles, you do not have to become like the Jews because of Jesus. 
It's not like by becoming like one another, but finding your unity, your common identity in Jesus that we become one. And he says, Paul is making everyone upset. He's pushing everyone's buttons here. Paul is showing that true unity can only come by remembering our alienation, by re-experiencing our reconciliation, then finally by re-engaging our purpose. In these last five verses in 18 through 22, Paul declares that the purpose of humans, that humans beings exist. Why do we exist? He says that we exist to dwell with God, that God is our true home. That we exist to dwell with him. That, we, that in him we live and we move and we have our being. And that the whole point of being a human is to dwell with God in love. And the Bible tells the story that sin exiled us from God's presence. That we are created in this. We are created to dwell with him in perfect love. And that sin exiled us from his presence. It alienated us from him and alienated, alienated us from one another. The Bible also tells us that God loves us. And he promises to restore us to himself. And to return, him, return us to himself, to dwell with him in love. That's why in the Old Testament, God gave Abraham a family. This is why God called Moses and spoke with him. Why God walked with, with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Why God led Israel into the promised land. This is why Solomon built a temple for God to dwell with his people. And we're told then that God's glory filled the temple But God's presence with Israel was temporary because God didn't fully dwell with the nations then. He doesn't fully dwell with the nations until he came in Jesus. In his incarnation, in his birth, Jesus was called Emmanuel, called God with us. In his life, in Jesus' life, he invited people to come and follow him. He said, abide in me and I in you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I I will give you rest. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He called his disciples his friends. All of this is because he's saying to us that we are designed to dwell with him. And in his crucifixion, he gave his life to bring near those who are far off. And after he ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit, who is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is why Jesus, this is his purpose. This is why he came to earth, why God became a man. That Jesus is home looking for you. Jesus came from God to dwell with you. And this is part of what we're supposed to be doing right now. If you're a Christian, part of your mission, your work in life is to, be, is to learn to become the place of, where God dwells. To learn to become the dwelling place of God. And this is what Paul is saying in these last verses. He says, together we have access in one spirit to the Father. That we're citizens all together, Jew and Gentile included in Christ. We're members of God's household. A household not built on cultural biases, but on the teaching of the apostles and of Jesus. Paul is saying that this is the work of the church. To pursue this unity that Christ has purchased and to dwell with God together. So what does this look like for us? What what does it look like for us to to live into this? Um, Well, a couple of things. If you are a Christian and you're here tonight... God is calling you to pursue unity in Christ with those who are different from you. This is the work. So that together you might be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, what can you do? Find someone who is different than you, and for the only reason for your friendship is Christ. And be their friend. So that Christ might dwell in you together. And if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, first of all, we're so glad that you're here. Um, 
If you're not a Christian, you're here tonight. Um, here's, here's my thought for you. Um, are you all familiar with the artist Banksy? Some of you are, some of you aren't. There's lots of up and down heads. So if you're unfamiliar with Banksy, he had a piece of art that was sold for $1.4 million in the fall. And it was this, this art that when it was sold in the gallery, there was a shredder built into the frame and it immediately started, did y'all see this in the news? It immediately started shredding this $1.4 million piece of art. And they actually now they say it's worth more. So it's now because, it, I don't know. I don't understand art. Um, so here's why I bring up Banksy. No one's ever seen Banksy. Like, he is an anonymous celebrity. He, he's famous for all of his art. He's a filmmaker. He, um, his, his art is famous around the world. But no one's ever seen him. And people speculate as to his identity, but no one, no one knows for sure who he is. Um, he's an activist. He's British. Um, Wikipedia thinks that he's a white, 40-something, scruffy, casual, jeans and t-shirt kind of British guy. Um, and we can kind of gather this from his art. Like, if you've seen his art, it's got this, like, this politically active, um, kind of scruffy vibe. And so you can kind of get a sense of who he is based on his art, right? Like, if Banksy turned out to be a 95-year-old South American woman, like, we would be very surprised. Like, that's not what we saw coming. We thought he was a British guy. Um, so why am I sharing this with you? Why am I telling you about Banksy? Because of his art, we have a sense of who he is. And what he stands for. Yet no one has ever seen him. We have a sense of who he is or what he might be like because of his art. And a question for you, um, if you're not a Christian, is could could the same be true of God? That what God is doing in the church with people who um, who claim to have been brought alive in Christ, um, this is God's art. Um, Could that reveal who he is? This new humanity he's creating, um, bringing the many to be one, could this, um, could this reveal who he is, what kind of God he is? This is um, the, could it be that Jesus is who he says he is, that he actually is supremely beautiful and intellectually compelling and actually worthy of your worship? Um, as I close tonight, I just want to leave you with one picture of this, and um, it's about. A, I want to tell you a story of a man named Ken Parker. If you put the picture up, um, this is Ken Parker. Um, so, as you can tell, he's holding a salt weapon. He has a swastika on one chest. It's a, um, there's a uh, like clan symbol on his right chest, and he has a tattoo on his thigh that um, is a, a Confederate flag that says something about um, white nationalism on it. And in 2017, he was a student at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, and there was a, a, a headline in the school paper saying that it was increasing its police presence on campus because Ken Parker, a junior year political science student and self-proclaimed Nazi, posted threats online directed at a student group linked to Black Lives Matter. Now, Parker um, is a former grand dragon of the loyal white knights of the KKK and a member of the National Socialist Movement. Now, three months before this picture was taken, Ken Parker joined hundreds of other white nationalists at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And that day, he wore a black shirt with two lightning bolts sewn on the collar, which was the uniform of the National Socialist Movement, which was an American neo-Nazi group. And then 12 months following Charlottesville, his belief and his paths were radically changed. During the rally, just hours before um, Heather Hare was killed, Parker and his group of neo-Nazis headed back to a parking garage to regroup after the rally was declared an unlawful assembly. And there he met a filmmaker named Diya Khan, 
who was filming the event for a documentary on hate groups called White Right, Meeting the Enemy. And he recalls Khan's kindness in the moment of his weakness. He says this, he said, I pretty much had heat exhaustion after the rally because we like to wear our black uniforms and I drank a big Red Bull before the event and I was hurting and she was trying to make sure I was okay, Parker said. In the film, in this film, Parker is still unabashedly racist, vehemently stating his hatred for Jews and for gay people. But as he interacted with Khan more, his proclamations became less certain. Then, over the next few months, he started having doubts. And he says this. He says that Khan was completely respectful of him and his fiancée the whole time. And that got me thinking. She's a really nice lady. Just because she's got darker skin than I do and believes in a different God than the God I believe in, why am I hating these people? Now, a few months later, um, Parker was still weighing these doubts when he was at his apartment complex one afternoon, and he saw an African-American neighbor of his having a cookout near the pool. And as the sun began to set and the crowd began to thin, he and his then-girlfriend approached the man, William McKinnon III, who happened to be a pastor at All All Saints Holiness Church. And Parker didn't know that McKinnon was a pastor at first, but he says that he knew that there was something different about him. And this is the pastor speaking now. He said, so they sat down and she said they had some questions for me. And I just kept asking them what were their questions that they had. And they kept talking and they decided to meet up more for more discussion. And soon after that, McKinnon invited Parker to the church's Easter service. And on April 17th, 2018, so less than a year ago, six years after Parker joined the Klan and seven months after Charlottesville, Parker decided that he had enough. A month after that, he stood before the mostly African-American congregation of his new church and he testified. He said this. He said, I was a grand dragon of the KKK and then the Klan wasn't hateful enough for me. So I became a Nazi. And a lot of them, their jaws about hit the floor and their eyes got real big, he said. But after the service, not a single of them, one of them had anything negative to say. They're all coming up and hugging me and shaking my hand, you know, building me up instead of tearing me down. And from there, his transformation sped up. Because on July 21st of last summer, wearing a different kind of robe, if you want to do the next picture, Parker was baptized in the Atlantic Ocean in this church, where he and his fiance and one other white person are the only white people in this congregation. And then in August of 2018, Parker took off his shirt at the Laser Skin Solutions Tattoo Removal Clinic in Jacksonville, revealing his swastika and his Klan symbol. And his left leg, the Confederate flag with the words white pride written underneath. And right now he's undergoing the process of having these tattoos removed. Now, I tell you this story because it's extreme and because it's real. Like this is a real person whose life has been, life has been transformed by Jesus and now lives in unity with the people he hated. This is not fantasy. This is not made up. Friends, Christianity and Christian unity is not an ideal, but it is a divine reality that has been secured by Jesus. And the question that I want you to consider as you go out from here tonight, if Jesus has the power to bring peace and unity between a hate-filled neo-Nazi and an African-American congregation, what might he be able to do in your own life? Let's pray.